This is Macro Horizons, monthly episode 18, Big Dollar, Big Troubles, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Margaret Kierens, here with Ian Linging, Greg Anderson, Stephen Gallo, Dan Creter, Ben Reitzis, Dan Belton, John Hill, and Ben Jeffrey from our FIC Macro Strategy team to bring you our outlook for the U.S. dollar and market implications, the status of the U.S. dollar as reserve currency, if and when the increase in money supply will translate into inflation, and the impact of the extension in the period of uncertainty due to the resurgence in the pandemic in the backdrop of fiscal and monetary support. Each month, members from BMO's FIC Macro Strategy team join me for a roundtable focusing on relevant and timely topics that impact our markets. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at margaret.carens at bmo.com with questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear more about on future episodes. We value your input and appreciate your ideas and suggestions. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. The massive monetary and fiscal response is an effort to offset the huge hit to GDP, and we have yet to see how the stimulus works its way through to consumption. U.S. reserve balances have increased by $870 billion since March, flooding the system with cash, but the U.S. savings rates are at record levels as consumers remain cautious. Treasury is set to deploy about a trillion dollars in cash balances by the end of September, adding more money to the system. On the one hand, the risks of heavy debt load relative to GDP weigh on long-term growth prospects, while at the same time stoke future inflation fears. Fed QE and rates at the zero bound have also contributed to a decline in the U.S. dollar. The Fed's broad U.S. dollar index rallied by 3.9% in March on safe haven demand, but over the past three months, it's fallen by 3.7%. Although the dollar has already retraced most of its COVID crisis gains, the real U.S. dollar remains about 9% above its post-Bretton Woods average. With that in mind, we still expect another 3 to 5% of U.S. dollar decline over the next year. So let's open the discussion with Greg Anderson. Greg, what are the four main factors that are impacting the U.S. dollar decline, and what is your outlook for the currency? I would give you as the first reason positioning. The market got very complacent with long dollar positions, and they made a lot of sense. The dollar was the highest yielding G10 currency as a safe haven. But the markets needed to readjust coming out of the COVID-19 crisis. The second thing I would point to is politics. Trump was good for the dollar with tax cuts and support for American energy. And we presume things will be different under Biden. The next thing I would point to relative COVID-19 performance, the U.S.'s second wave or long tail of the first wave, however you want to look at it, seems worse than most other countries, which means potentially a slower recovery. And then the last thing that I would point to relative QE speed. And as I talk to people in the market, not a lot of people have good handle on the data, but the perception is there that the Fed is QEing the fastest and will QE the longest. 
Well, that's certainly consistent with the sentiment that we have seen in the treasury market when we think about what some of the overarching factors are behind the currency moves and what they mean for U.S. rates. We often hear the aggressiveness of the FOMC in terms of QE, dropping rates to zero very quickly in the beginning, and then the positioning story as well, because the logic holds that if it made sense to hold dollars as a safe currency with a comparatively high yield, that environment has just shifted dramatically. Although from my seat, I do think that the QE disparity is an important factor. Those are all great points, Ian. And certainly, if we look at the size of the Fed's balance sheet and we compare it to the ECB's, just looking at total assets, year to date through July, the annual pace of Fed balance sheet growth has outpaced the ECB's. And that's certainly important for the dollar. But the Fed also has the twin role of being central banker to the US and also central banker to the world. Even though it's 2020, the global monetary system is structurally in the same place that it was at the end of uh, Bretton Woods. Uh, there may be alternatives to the US dollar, but so far at least, there's no replacement for it. So alternatives are not the same thing as, things as replacements. But I think just to segue into EM, because I think it's an important focal point using the dollar supply story. One of the areas of caution I would point to when extrapolating dollar weakness is that for emerging markets, many of these economies are partly dollarized. And we're in a period in which the narrowest measures of money supply in emerging markets are poised to grow at at least as fast a pace, if not faster than their FX reserves for a sustained period of time. So that divergence, I think, is a significant credibility test for many of these emerging market currencies, especially because the central banks in question are getting involved in unorthodox policy measures for the first time ever. So real yields are being crushed. Central banks are also resorting to measures that are biased towards higher levels of financial repression and also reduced financial openness. And that, to me, is not exactly a bullish narrative for EM currencies. Yes, Stephen, you touch on real yields. And in the TIPS market in the US in particular, the fact that we've seen 10-year reals fall to negative 107 basis points, which is a record low, is a great example of the efficacy of the Fed's QE program. Almost exactly by design, the precipitous drop in inflation-adjusted borrowing costs is going to be a crucial ingredient in the economic recovery for the pandemic. This leaves the question on the direction of inflation, Q4, Q1, and really whether or not central banks around the world are going to be able to ultimately inspire consumer price pressures, or if asset price inflation is the best we're going to get. Clearly, risk assets have performed very well since the depths of the recession, but whether this increase and whether the drop in real yields translates into consumer prices really remains to be seen. I think, Ben, you raise a real great point about real yields and being one of the biggest unknowns in the marketplace. On the one hand, we've got a massive amount of money supply hitting the system. At the same time, we've got a disinflationary shock and, like you said, record negative real yields and tens. So it really begs the question as to if and when and how we might have an inflationary impulse at some point in the future. The biggest debate doesn't seem to be around whether or not we will have an episode of disinflation, which is very consistent with the spike in the unemployment rate and the amount of damage that's being done to the labor market. But it's presumably what we experienced in the second quarter and is likely to play out over the next few quarters. The bigger issue is 
whether or not the massive amount of stimulus that's being put into the system ultimately translates through to an inflationary environment in 2021, 22, or beyond. What a lot of market participants are doing is they're drawing the parallels between 2020 and 2010 and simply concluding that because it was so difficult for the Fed to generate true demand-side consumer price inflation in the last episode that we're going to have very similar structures in the years ahead. That makes sense. The one caveat that I would add, however, is during the last financial crisis, we saw an increase in banking regulations that effectively increased the reserve requirement and collapsed the velocity of money. Fast forward to 2021, 2022, that is not going to be a factor. What we're going to have to contend with, however, is a more significant reduction in the employment market. And I think that that will be the biggest uncertainty after the election. And Ian, to circle back a little bit, I think you make a couple of really good points. And one of the most imperative things to be watching right now is when we talk about the Fed printing money, there's different types of money that the Fed can print. And what I mean by that is, The Fed doing QE, which just creates reserves, which sit at the Fed, does not lead to huge credit creation or an acceleration through the banking system the way that printing actual cash might. So what's going to be very important to watch this time around is how much of the Fed's QE program and balance sheet expansion works its way into money that's usable by the real economy. And one other thing that's very different this time around is 10, 12 years ago, the U.S. Treasury's cash balance was extremely small. This time, we're talking trillion, $2 trillion levels. That Treasury cash balance also acts as something that sucks money out of the rest of the system that would otherwise be used for loans, credit creation, and economic stimulus. To follow up on those two points, I think one of the bigger differences this time now versus 2010 is the fiscal situation and the willingness of governments to spend almost at will with disregard to where deficits are in order to support the economy through this very difficult time. And while that's very much appropriate given the current circumstances, it does beg the question of when this is over, are they going to be able to pull back quickly enough to avoid that inflationary impulse? Our central banks, you can ask the same question about central banks. Will central banks be able to pull back quickly enough to avoid that inflationary impulse? I think that's something to be asked, and that's something I think broader markets and currency markets are very much asking as well. Ben, I think your points on future potential goods price inflation or above target inflation are a good segue into the rallies that have been occurring in precious metals like silver and gold since the start of the year. Certainly one thing we can tick off on the list is currency devaluations. So when all fiat currencies are being devalued at more or less the same time, precious metals do well almost by default. Certainly fears over uncomfortably high inflation have probably caused rotation by private investors out of cash, away from equities and into precious metals. But data from the World Gold Council also indicate that official accounts, so central banks, have been raising their gold allocations too. But that may not be simply a product of future inflation fears. It could also be due to the fact that they fear future deflationary economic shocks to the global economy that would force them to intervene to prop up their local currencies by selling gold and other reserves. So they need an adequate stock of dollar liquidity if another deflationary shock 
wobbles the global economy. On the one hand, we have the Fed and the fiscal government plugging the hole in GDP. And I think to John's point, how does this translate into the real economy becomes critical. And currently we have a very high savings rate and it's not completely translating into the economy. Well, Margaret, one of the points that you've made in the past is that this entire experience in the pandemic is going to materially change how consumers behave, what priorities in terms of spending are, and how that translates through the system will dictate to a large extent whether or not we actually have consumer inflation in the way that we traditionally think of it. If economic participants favor saving or investing over consumption, which appears to be the case, as the pandemic has picked up, and that ultimately becomes a lasting theme, then the U.S. is going to face some significant struggles to work its way out of the pandemic recession. The flip side being, once the proverbial dust settles, if priorities are shifted back toward larger housing, for example, if the work-from-home environment is here to stay, then we could actually see the double impact of lower rates propping up real assets, gold an obvious one, but real estate quickly comes to mind. While it certainly won't be the case in urban centers, we're already starting to see prices bid up in the first ring suburbs and beyond. So given the relevance of shelter costs to core inflation in the U.S., obviously that differs in the way that it's measured in Europe, it's challenging to imagine that there isn't at least some incremental upside risk for inflation in year two, three, or four. So Ian, you raise a good point about housing costs driving inflation. And one of the biggest changes in behavior that we are seeing during this pandemic is an increase in demand for certain types of houses, larger houses, because people need offices, suburban areas that are less densely populated in order to avoid the spread of the pandemic. And certainly this should help offset some of the shock to aggregate demand and the disinflationary fallout. But there are several other factors, several other changes that will be permanent on the back of this pandemic with regard to how we work, where we work, what we consume, and whether or not the increase in housing demand will be enough to offset the rest of it has yet to be seen. You know, another one of the changes that I think will be permanent is where things are produced. So for the last several years, Trump has been the chief cheerleader of reshoring, but this is not just a U.S. phenomena. So Japan and Europe are aggressively encouraging multinationals to reshore production of things like medical PP&E, but it's not just that. You know, it's food, it's energy, it's other critical industries. I think we will see a trend over the next decade of the major countries looking to reshore. But as they do that, there will be hiccups, and the hiccups will lead to supply bottlenecks and potentially inflation. Greg, I think one of the implications of the reshoring, you, you know, talked about how it takes time, but that should help to absorb some of the employment that may be permanently lost due to the fallout from the pandemic. 
So really, the takeaway is, in terms of the inflation argument, it's a matter of timing. I think a lot of people expect near-term downward pressure to remain on core prices, but given a variety of factors, not least of which being a weaker dollar and the risk of importing inflation unto itself, the bigger question becomes, how long will the market be willing to wait before they give up on the notion that inflation might eventually come back? That dynamic would be very consistent with what we saw in the 2009 to 2019 period. So let's transition back to the U.S. dollar. We've had a pretty dramatic move recently. Where do you see the dollar going from here? One thing that I think is critical to point out Coming out of the crisis, the dollar was about 12% above its long-run average. So the move we've seen over the last three months, and call it a 5% dollar weakening, that's just a mean reversion move thus far. And kind of do the math, and you can go another 5 to 7%, and you're still in a mean reversion move. I think we could see that over the next year and a half. Um, I think that for the remainder of this year, probably three to 5% is the most that we would see. But the market knows well that currencies mean revert and they jump on these trends at least until something gets back to its average. And we've got a ways to go in, as far as the dollar is concerned. And when we think about how that translates through to the U.S. rates market, it's very consistent with the notion that we're going to continue to be in a definable range with a downward bias on rates up until the point where there is a clear resolution to the pandemic, whether that comes in the form of a widely available vaccine or some other type of treatment that allows the real economy to effectively reopen is less of an issue than, of course, the timing of it. And as we look toward the balance of the year, it gets more challenging to envision a bearish scenario for the rates market that puts 10-year yields above 125. And if anything, the optimism as we move into the end of the year will get us off lows, presumably re-steepen the curve somewhat. But let's face it, we're going to be range-bound for quite some time in U.S. Treasuries. So Ian, you mentioned a potential re-steepening of the curve. That had been a theme in the marketplace for some time. We have seen you know, the opposite happen as of late. We've got 10s right now at 52 and a half basis points, nearing resistance levels. Where do you think tens go in the near term from here? In the near term, there's downside risk for rates. This has a lot to do with the fact that the increase in COVID-19 cases have taken the V-shaped recovery scenario completely off the table. And as a result, the market has lowered expectations for the overall path of rates. We still see a reasonable probability that the curve re-steepens into the end of the year. However, the constructive seasonals in the Treasury market, combined with the near-term event risks around the labor market, really make it difficult to aggressively sell Treasuries, at least with 10-year yields north of 45 basis points. So Ian, you raised some great points there, and I think one of them is that the period of uncertainty has extended due to the continuation of the pandemic, and we've got corporate credit spreads having retraced quite a bit here. Clearly, there's going to be some additional economic damage just due to the lengthening of the period, so going to... Dan Creeder and Dan Belton, 
what is your outlook for credit spreads? And has this lengthening of the pandemic period changed that outlook? Well, Margaret, you alluded to the fact that credit spreads have recovered quite a lot, and they have. They're almost 90% recovered from pre-pandemic levels. So on an absolute basis, spreads don't look very attractive at current levels. But if you look at spreads on a percentage of treasury basis, they're at the high end of the historical range, just given how low treasury yields have gotten. So viewed through that lens, credit spreads are actually very attractive. And so you have this push-pull of uncertainty regarding COVID, but then this discussion of inflation that we've talked a lot about on this podcast so far. We talked about how we're not seeing inflation coming through in consumer prices, but I think it's inarguable that we are seeing inflation coming through in financial assets. We have bonds across the curve at or near all-time lows and stocks just off of record high levels. To me, that screams asset price inflation, and there's no reason to think that's going to go away given all of the central bank dynamics we've talked about thus far, high savings rate, which is possibly a function of a lot of monetary supply that isn't being used to spend in the real economy. So in an environment where financial asset prices keep being bid up and up and up, we'd expect credit spreads to go to historical lows. And ultimately, in the long term, that is where we expect to see them. But looking ahead in the very near term, there is certainly cause for some concern. Ian alluded to the hopes of a V-shaped recovery being somewhat dashed. And we've observed bankruptcies on the rise in the U.S., particularly among small businesses as stimulus fades. So as we head into the fall and people are forced back indoors and the expectation is that already concerning virus statistics start to get worse, we could see a transitory increase in spreads just based off of an increase in fear and an increase in volatility. But given the extent of Fed accommodation, that backup is unlikely to be very significant or very long-lasting. Yeah, Dan, you allude to the push-pull between fundamentals and technicals. And both of these factors have persisted in unprecedented volumes over the past few months. And I think if we don't see any material credit spread weakness in the next couple months, it's very likely that the market looks beyond any near-term virus headlines and is able to price to the 2021-2022 future for credit markets, which is a lot of the stimulus that's going to be still in the system. It's likely that Fed quantitative easing will still be around in some capacity. At the very least, rates will be at the zero lower bound. And I think all of these factors long-term made me very bullish for credit spreads. So Danny, you mentioned you know, just the amount of Fed stimulus. And if we go to the Bank of Canada, the Bank of Canada has basically been buying everything and Ben writes says, what do you think the implications are for Canadian rates in the curve? You're exactly right. The bank's been aggressively buying and they've actually just started to ease up just a tad over the past couple of weeks. They've almost been running out of bonds to buy at this point. They've included benchmark bonds in order to ensure they don't actually run out of literally bonds to buy. And what we've seen over the past couple of weeks, we had a consistent period where the 10 and 30 year sectors were up against a significant resistance. They've broken through that now. And it wouldn't be a total shock to see 10-year yields revisit the lows we got in early March when there was a total market panic. There really is nothing technically between current levels and those levels. So if we see a continued rally here on ongoing central bank buying, which is not going to end anytime soon, as I think everybody's mentioned, then we could very well see those yield lows revisited. You mentioned the amount that the Canadian Central Bank is buying. And that takes me back to one of the factors that 
Greg started with, and that was really the Fed QE and the implications for the U.S. dollar. One of the most frequent questions that we've been getting over the past few weeks is the status of the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency and whether or not that's under threat. One thing that I could see happening over the next several years is that the world's biggest reserve holder, China, no longer holds its reserves in U.S. dollars. But if we're looking at the broader picture beyond that, there still isn't an alternative to the U.S. dollar. The only alternative, at least where you don't have a central bank that's also printing money right alongside the Fed, is gold. Gold has no money printing central bank. But whether the world is ready to transact in gold or some type of uh, gold certificate, I think it's too soon, still one crisis too soon for that. So I don't think the U.S. reserve status is under threat at this time. To echo Greg's remarks, transitioning away from the U.S. dollar as the anchor currency of the global financial system, if it happens at all, is is like unscrambling an omelet. I think, you know, with the credit team, one of the best analogies is to think of the LIBOR transition and how many legal and financial headaches there are in that process. Remodeling the dollar-based system is that process times 20. It doesn't mean it can't happen. But in order for it to occur, you would need a ton of coordination, I think, at the global level and massive structural change in a number of currencies. The two candidates for alternatives or potentially replacements for the dollar would be the euro and the RMB. But the problem, for example, with the euro is that unlike the US dollar, the euro has never been considered an integral part of EU foreign policy. In fact, I would even say the architects of the euro, particularly on the German side, did not want a geopolitical role for the euro or an EU treasury because they thought having both would compromise the objectives of monetary policy and cede too much control. The other key issue, and I think this is very important, is how the euro and the eurozone have been used to turn the bloc into an export-based economy. And I think it's harder to be the top reserve currency if your economy is dependent on everyone else. And if you have trade surpluses, by definition, that means there is a shortage of assets in your own currency for non-residents to own. And then finally, in contrast, on the Chinese side, China has given the RMB a bit more of a strategic role in geopolitics through things like the Belt and Road Initiative. But the relatively low usage of the RMB in payments and FX turnover is due to China's reluctance to engage in full financial openness. So again, they're both alternatives to the dollar, but whether or not they can be full replacements for the dollar is a much different issue, a much bigger issue. Well, thank you, Greg and Stephen, on that. So we've covered quite a bit of topics today, and I think that we should end with what is the biggest risk to the U.S. dollar depreciation call? I guess in my mind would be some combination of Trump winning the election and oil prices roaring back. Thanks, Greg. I agree and would probably add that an earlier than expected rollout of a vaccine would probably help on the margin. Thank you to all of our BMO experts and thank you for listening. This concludes Macro Horizons monthly episode 18, Big Dollar, Big Troubles. Please reach out to us with feedback and any ideas on topics that you'd like us to tackle. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash Macro Horizons. We'd like to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can send us an email at margaret.carens at bmo.com. 
You can listen to the show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. And we'd appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show is produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. FEMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.